Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Investigate beautifully detailed scenes of the 1920s, finding out what happened to her or your in the game, sister. With hundreds of mind-teasing puzzles, the next clue is always within reach. Search for hidden objects from the parlours of New York to the sidewalks of Paris. Each chapter uncovers a collection of dazzling hidden object spectacles for you to solve, and I've had a lot of fun. Currently on chapter 7, making progress little by little, tapping away on my phone to get all the puzzle pieces in place. While searching for the murderer, or whatever happened to your sister, you get to decorate your own island with gardens and buildings and chat and play with other Others by joining a detective club. It's a lot of fun and very social. I play while I'm on the train. It keeps me active between my journeys to London and I love the time limits that are pushing me to find those clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Could we could we join forces? I trust you, you trust me. We're both on the same side here and the side is Let's try to solve a mystery of why we would disagree on this. I was wrong about a bunch of stuff, but also so were you. But I was right about some stuff, and so were you. And you move forward in a way that debate doesn't allow for. Were you thinking of skipping this episode of On the Edge with Andrew Gold? Uh, That's my new voice I'm trying out, influenced very much by British comedian Matt Berry. Well, permit me to change your minds. Um, (laughs) It's uh, David McCraney, a journalist and self-described psychology nerd from Mississippi. 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 He has written for many top science and philosophy publications, including The Atlantic and Psychology Today. And he's on to talk about his brand new book, how Minds Change, the New Science of Belief, Opinion and Persuasion. Get it in all the normal places. I loved it. It contains some very real techniques for actually getting people to change their minds about certain topics. We've all experienced that feeling of debating a friend or foe and throwing facts at one another and neither person budging an inch. We don't care. I don't care about your facts. I care about my feelings. So we'll chat today about how we can get around that and why it is we make these ideas so sacred in our minds. Uh, We connect ideas and beliefs we hold to our own identities and that makes them very hard to change. Um, I had a great time chatting to David. I hope you enjoy listening to him too and that you get some value out of this one. Stuff you can use in real life. Coming up, our space lawyer, Franz von der Dunk. Uh, which maybe you can use some of that stuff in real life once we get out to space. All about lore out there. He's a professor, very interesting. Um, The owner of Fesshole Twitter account uh, of Anonymous Confessions. It's a very funny one. It's got half a million followers. That's Rob Manuel. And anti-woke professor Peter Boghossian, among many others coming up in the coming weeks. But now you're on the edge of changing minds with David McCraney. I asked you off of the thing, but I'm going to ask you again and pretend it's the first time. How are you doing, David? <laughs> what I was saying uh, before we hit record was uh, it's publication day for me, which is uh, after five years of working on this thing and talking about it and all sorts of the stuff that goes in with that. Um, it's weird. You wake up, you make your coffee, you watch the uh, wind disturb the branches, and you're like, so... Um, should I light a sparkler? Should I pop a cork? I have coffee already. Um, 
and then you start getting messages from people and, and uh, emails and everything else, and it just start to accept. Oh wow, we really it really is a thing. A thing. So uh, I'll do a thing that I'm I've been planning this forever. After this interview, I'm going to go and just kind of browse the bookstores, see where it's at, what people are doing, and uh, in the course. Uh, social media keeps rolling in with all sorts of things. So it's a really incredible day. I'm really trying to, to, to stay in a, in a gratitude state of mind right now. It's incredible. I've, I've found before, so I haven't done many things that are big things, but one was my exorcism documentary. And when it came out on the BBC, I found I was sort of hit with an unexpected wave of depression, not, not clinical depression, but like, oh, it's sort of done now. Do, are you getting that? Yeah, of course. It's a, uh, I, uh, everyone I know who's in this world, we all, we talk about this sometimes behind the scenes. Uh, this is a, uh, and, a and it may not be a, a savory term to to borrow something from somewhere else, but they call it a, a sort of a postpartum kind of thing. Uh, it's it's very common. It's there are people, authors and other people have written about it for hundreds of years. Honestly, that uh, and there's psychological. There's all sorts of reasons psychologically why this takes place. You you build so much. Your, uh, so much of what we do lies in anticipation. Uh, positive or negative and then um and you have all these manifestations of what you think is going to happen and then it's there and there's not like a parade or anything and uh and you expect your life to be completely different because you've been thinking about that day and then the day comes and you're like oh yeah i'm still standing here i still, I still have to do laundry so <laughs> and there's that there's a recalibration that takes place so you have to be aware of that and realize it's it's not like anything is actually happening. You're, you're experiencing a, a unique thing that people don't always get to experience. And, um, and I think there's the, all this weirdness about not wanting to talk about it or, or, um, cause you, cause the public, no matter what you make or what you do, even if you just had a baby, you know, they expect you to be all smiles and giggles and laughs and high fives. And there would be, it seems like you would be, um, it seems like you would be sort of violating and um it seems like you would be wasting all the goodwill or that you would be a bad friend or arbiter of of your relationships to reveal that hey i also have a weird feeling inside of me so you just keep it to yourself like so it's all part of it I'm, i was expecting it here it is it's fine okay okay you're doing all right with it yeah you saw it coming i guess i didn't see it coming <laughs> so much with mine and also it was that realization i think as you're saying the anticipation and and the struggle was the fun the struggle was like, can i get it sold will someone buy this will it come out what will happen and then oh it's done and i think about like louis theroux who's a documentary maker i love and and i think like is he happy he's now that was my first big documentary for a tv channel he's like now like okay number 55 now and like is that can that bring you happiness what do you think about that uh i i mean i guess i have to pull back and think about all the podcasts you know i put a podcast out every two weeks and some of them are take weeks and weeks to make some of them some of them are months of work and um and they're shoveled in with others that are just straight up an interview and uh you just once you're in that place like you you're like well it's out there i hope people enjoy it i got to go back to work on my next thing so i that there's a way to like uh to i think manage it in that regard because you're like i look I'm, i make things and it's important to me to make the next thing i hope people love the last thing i made but i can't focus too much on waiting for the feedback i think in a, a big book project like a, a documentary or a film or a, a book or some or, or a um um 
a stage performance or something, there's that lag period where if you haven't got another thing loaded up that you're working on, you get, you just sit in the wait, wait for feedback stage, which is very close to the eager for validation because I'm insecure about uh, whether or not people like me thing. And I, re I don't recommend that. Uh, luckily for me, I do have another book that's going to be, that I'm going to start working on in about three weeks. So I, I think about that a little bit at uh, leading up to the launch, I was very excited to, cause we were talking back and forth, the same team that worked with me, the same editors, same, uh, um, crew of people who helped put this out there are all very excited to jump into the next thing. And so I keep that in the back of my mind. Why don't you tell us a bit about your background and how you came to, to write, how, how minds change? Sure. Um, I, uh, am a, I now consider myself a science journalist, a writer, author, person that does that sort of thing, person that makes, puts a lot of words, uh, in my computer and, shape them up and then send them out either on audio or in text. The um, way that all got started for me was I had lived a postgraduate life of uh, doing construction and owning pet stores and uh, selling leather coats and all sorts of weird stuff. And then I went back to school and I was really into psychology. I thought I was going to be a therapist and I was very close to that degree when I switched uh, at the last second to journalism and then went down that path. And after that, I wrote for newspapers and eventually found my way into television, um, where I was mostly working on the website of things. And then, uh, was before, got before the camera every now and then. And it was somewhere in there that I wanted to write. I just always it was my passion. So I, um, started a blog about the stuff in psychology that fascinated me, which was, it was always the stuff about, uh, poor critical thinking, self-delusion, biases, fallacies, that sort of stuff. I like the humbling nature of it. I like the unifying nature of it because we all experience the same stuff in the same way that makes us do the same dumb things. And that blog just really took off and that led to a book and then a second book. And to promote the second book, I started a podcast called you are not so smart. And the podcast took off. I was just in the right place at the right time twice, like blogs when blogs were a thing, podcasts when podcasts just got started. And somewhere in there, I had become a person who talked in front of audiences about this sort of thing. And oftentimes, uh, right around, right before everything got weird when it comes to like post-truth stuff, I w was in a Q I was doing a Q&A and someone asked me, about their father who had fallen into a really deep conspiracy theory. One of the ones that has like uh, reptilians and things in it. And they asked like, what, 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 what should I do? How can I talk to him? How can I change his mind? And I remember very clearly saying, uh, you can't because I was in a very cynical state of mind at the time. And it was sort of making a living telling people about motivated reasoning, but in a, in a, a pessimistic viewpoint, I think. And, I didn't like it. I felt it. It was like locking your keys in your car. I was like, I don't think I actually want to believe that or don't believe that or something. Something's wrong about the way I'm saying this to people. And about the same time in the United States, uh, same-sex marriage norms, laws, and attitudes were shifting very quickly. And someone who grew up in the deep South United States, I was very familiar and had friends and family who were LGBTQ. I was right there watching what they were going through. And also I was on the other side of the arguments online. And I was also curating arguments online for that news website I was working at. And I was just watching people argue all the time about it in a way that seems impossible today. I think it's hard to even imagine what it was like 
in the early to mid 2000s when before the laws changed in the United States, how much people argued about this to the point it was like arguing over any wedge issue you could imagine today. And news stories would come out about how this is an intractable argument. Nobody's ever going to change their mind. Stop doing this. Um, and then everybody just changed their mind is what it seemed like, you know, from the outside. If you weren't involved in the struggle, it seemed like over the overnight, everybody was like, oh, wait, never mind. I feel differently about it. And I noticed from my end of things, all the arguments online just evaporated, like, whew, like the ones that I was curating on a daily basis. And I just was looking at these two things together thinking, okay, look, people can change their minds clearly, but I also don't understand what that phrase even means apparently. And I'm doing all this work in this domain. And this seems like an unexplored territory for me, or, and it seems like the kind of territory that if I explored it, I might change my own mind. And I just jumped in and I didn't really initially think of it as being a book project, but it very quickly became such because the first person I asked about it was Jim Alcock. He's a belief researcher. And I, I, he was the person that was most recommended to me. He had been studying it for 45 years. And I first question I asked him was this old journalism trick where you say, like, pretend I'm five years old. What is, um, how would you define the word belief? And he just blew a bunch of air out of his uh, throat with, and then leaned back in his chair <laughs> and said, that's really tough. And I felt myself go, oh no, uh, 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 the guy who understands belief doesn't know what belief means. <laughs> and he's, and he, he was careful with me. He said that, um, look, I, I can't give you an answer because I've been researching it for so much. It's too complex an idea to define. And, and so I had pitched it as a book after that. I had pitched it as a book after the same sex marriage thing. And, um, and they said, yeah, go for it. But then every researcher I confronted said something similar. And I realized that this couldn't be like the other stuff I had done. I couldn't go into the literature and just translate it for a, a lay audience. I couldn't go talk to experts and then just tell you what they told me and then sprinkle a bunch of clever prose and jokes in there. I had, I was going to have to actually go learn something that maybe the, there wasn't a book about yet. And that's what I did. I went and spent time with people either who were in conspiracy theory communities or cults or pseudo cults or, or some sort of extremist political viewpoints. I talked to people who had left those sort of groups. And then I went to speak spend time with activists, people who actively attempt to persuade people, all this sort of stuff. And then I brought that my adventures back to experts and said, could you explain what I saw here, 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 here? And that started to generate actual something. And that's how the book got started. And that's the journey that it, you, and I, I've, my editor was like, you should just, it should be transparent. Just the book should just be an arc of, you don't know the answer in the beginning. And at the end of the book, you have these, these things you discovered and that's how it's presented. Why is it so hard to change somebody's mind? Are there evolutionary reasons as well? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like one of the things you have to, well, first of all, yeah, I, I like to build this up, but we can build this up in layers. It's the old Robert Sapolsky uh, trick where you go in and let's start it. Let's start. He uses time scales. Like if we're talking about, uh, he, he has this whole thing of like, if it, why did the chicken cross the road? And he's like, well, let's talk about within its decision on the scale of, se of milliseconds, seconds, minutes, months, years, its life, uh, the thousands of generations leading up to this moment. So you can answer the question, why do people resist or why is it so hard to change people's minds on a couple of different scales uh, or different frames, depending on how far you want to zoom into the human mind. Um, generally speaking, just as an organism that can update its priors, just as we're an organism that can learn, uh, we're not, we have plenty of, um, of 
nature inside of us, plenty of innate uh, propensities, plenty of evolved responses. But we also have the ability to update our models as we move forward to have a more to be able to make better plans and decisions. And any creature that can learn walks a tightrope of updating that model, which is if you update it when you shouldn't, then you could become wrong in a way that could get you eaten or make it so you don't ever get to eat again or mate or something that's very important to, to organisms that have genes. Or you could uh, uh, not update when you should, which means you will you are wrong and will stay wrong, which can then lead to you getting eaten or not getting food and not reproducing. So this is a very... A careful tightrope of adaptation that we walk and we on the largest scale we resist changing our minds because so well we're here we're sitting here we're talking i had a hot dog yesterday it's fine so that means on some levels this is working and the danger is more in the domain of of updating when i shouldn't and so we resist at that level first but then as you add in a bunch of different drives and motivations there are other things we that we actually are more concerned with than dying, uh, which is kind of hard to believe, right? But the uh, Brooke Harrington, the sociologist, she gave me this wonderful thing that I put in the book, which is the e equals MC square of social science is the fear of social death is greater than the fear of physical death. If we are faced with a scenario in which we intuit that our reputation is at stake, or that a reputation may be at stake to the point of we're going to get is going to be ruined or destroyed. We will justify, explain, and rationalize and reason in the direction of reputation management more than we will anything else. So it's sort of like saying um, belonging goals trump accuracy goals at all times. So if you're in a situation where changing your mind or someone's trying to change your mind, where they are instilling in you some kind of fear that you might be about to uh, pay some social costs for what's about to happen next, the resistance will get stronger. So you already have the initial resistance. Now the resistance gets stronger. And there's a, about a billion other motivations that will fall into play because we're motivated reasoners. You might think this is financially uh, threatening. This is uh, this might hurt my family. This might hurt the way. But a lot of it's reputation management. And uh, that is sort of the first two things I would say about resistance. Those two things are important. Then also things happen right there in the moment where in the dynamic you could say something or suggest something where the person will intuit that you are trying to coerce, you're trying to manipulate, uh, you're trying to corner them in a way that they don't want to be cornered. So they will resist. They can feel your aggression feel you pushing. So they'll push back harder than you're pushing forward. Or they could be something so simple as somehow something you've done suggested them that you're about to make them feel like they should be ashamed for what they think, feel, or believe. And that ejects you from the conversation right off the bat for all the same reasons I've mentioned before. So on several different scales of uh, nature and nurture, it's safer to resist than not. And so we update very carefully, but we do update. It's a, it's just that uh, resistance can be lowered or increased depending on what happens in the dynamic. I suppose we've all had those feelings. I've definitely had that when I've debated with people and I found myself sort of looking in the back of my head for a reason why I'm right. And then I think, hang on, but why am I looking so hard to prove that this person's wrong rather than just listening to what they're saying? But it, it actually physically is painful sometimes to be shown that I'm wrong. Yeah, it can be. I mean, it depends. It so depends on the context. It depends on the issue at hand. The closer it gets to identity, the more you start to freak out. And there's, I know there are plenty of people and, and uh, 
present company included, who like to think of themselves as being in sort of critical thinking communities, uh, rationalist, humanist communities, um, big S skeptic communities, and so on. And that's an identity. As soon as you feel like you're going to meetings and you're going to conferences and you're interacting with certain people on certain websites that has an us versus them quality to it, that's a group identity that you've that you've adopted. And all those uh, psychological mechanisms, motivations, and drives that go along with being a social primate will then become top of mind for you, even in a community like that. And there's there are dogmas everywhere because of it. And you'll find that you have this selective skepticism about certain things. Like it's very easy to change your mind about some stuff, but for other things, it's like, hmm. And it's not irrational to be selectively skeptical, especially when your reputation is at stake because so much depends on it and your identity starts to be at stake because you might lose all these wonderful social connections and this chance to meet the people that you care about and, and learn things from them. And I found that it's, it's interesting that we have, this is just part of being a person, but there are some places, some institutions where we've found a way to have these two things work together. So like if you're a flat earther, you're, uh, desire to be a good member of the flat earther community and a good flat earther yourself will put the belonging goal of, ahead of accuracy goals to the point that you're getting more wrong as time goes by factually wrong. And, but if you're a, 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 a biologist and you are a professor and you're producing paper papers all the time and you're an institution where there are lots of eyeballs on your work, the scientific community is vets everything they can't wait to destroy you if you got something wrong. And we depend on that. It's all about, I produce a hypothesis. We gather evidence. There are other hypotheses that have different levels of evidence. And to demonstrate that I'm a good member of my group, you have to engage in all of those things. And they've that way, your accuracy goals and your belonging goals are serving each other in that, in that institution. So there, there's no way to un be this kind of person, but there are ways to create situations where being this way delivers results over time. And uh, I, th I found that super fascinating. Did you did you ever see that grievance studies affair? Um, it was Helen Pluckrose, Peter Bogosian, oh, uh, it was yeah. also James Lindsay. Uh, and, and I didn't, I mentioned James last because he's a bit mad these days, but the other two are sort of more, less mad professors. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in the world of uh, fame is a bad thing for people who, uh, for some people like uh like without saying anything too uh off putting uh some people get a lot of fame and once they start uh once you get that fame you start feeling that that feeling when people make fun of you or criticize you or talk about you and you think about it a lot some people haven't done very well with that as i've noticed uh yeah but yeah. <laughs> but they did that thing didn't they that i think proved i think what you're saying about like even the professors and stuff have a little bit of a bias in that sense they they want to say the right things and they want the right studies to come out and that kind of thing yeah of course i mean that's it's just it is a it is as fundamental to human nature as getting hungry as fundamental to human nature as uh you know caloric input comes out as gaining or losing weight it's just part of being a person um if you start to get into the state of mind that you are above all that, that you aren't, that you're immune to it, that somehow you've read enough books that you're not going to act that way anymore. You're probably setting yourself up for the worst outcome uh, compared to someone who has epistemic humility or so whatever phrase you want to use for. I probably like, um, Will Storer gave me this wonderful thought experiment. I was just going to ask, did you, did you 
was it was you that tweeted out the Will Store thing, which is brilliant. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's funny you say that. I was just thinking I was going to ask. Was good, that good, you? good. I love I love Will, and uh, we've become good friends over the years. And uh, we write, or we're basically obsessed with the same stuff. And we're trying not to write each other's books, but we admit that we probably will as things go forward. Um, <laughs> yeah, he, he was on this. He's great. He's the best. Uh, I just uh, just talked to him like last week about this very thing that I'm about to tell you. Uh, it's paraphrasing, but it's a nice thought experiment, which is. Ask yourself if you're right about everything and we could change it. You know, when I say right and wrong, there's probably good to like put that out there. What we're talking about, even when it comes to changing your mind, it's good to make sure that we, we that we can change our mind about a lot of stuff. There are many mental constructs in the brain, beliefs, uh, estimations of truth, estimations of whether or not something has enough evidence to consider it true or false, you know, beliefs, attitudes, that's, uh, uh, feeling positive and negative towards something right and wrong in the sense of moral and ethical right and wrongs. You know, there's a, the attitude you have when I say chocolate cake versus medical waste, that's a different than a belief. Uh, if I say the president, uh, so-and-so is a great president, not, that's not a belief. That is a attitude that is, uh, supported by all sorts of things you would consider beliefs, but it's an attitude statement. And the values are where you put something in the hierarchy of what's more, more important than something else where you're, um, where you're, sort of your time, money, and effort. What should it be go to more, more so than other things? So right or wrong could be, uh, define any of these things. So there could be attached to you things. So the, here's the thought experiment. Ask yourself if you're right about everything. Uh, and if the answer is no, ask yourself, well, what are you wrong about? And if the answer is, well, I don't know, then ask yourself, why don't you know? And if, that becomes a, a difficult thing to answer. Ask yourself, how would you go about determining it? That's a super fantastic thought experiment that I think is um, sort of crucial to start the conversation on these matters. And he was saying, wasn't he? Like, I feel like I'm right about everything. Yeah, we all do. But I mean, like... also, yeah, but I also know I can't possibly be right, right about everything because who can be? So yeah, I, I, it, it is a weird thing. I get that as well. I, I see my, I'd like to see myself in that same camp of trying to be a rationalist about these things. Although there'd definitely be things that like you, um, Will and I probably all disagree on and things we do agree on. And then there was that Arthur Conan Doyle thing. I love that. Um, David Robson, the science writer, he was on talking about that. Uh, the, the writer of Sherlock, who he's supposed to be like the guy who's the logic guy because he created Sherlock Holmes, right? And he believed in fairies. So did. Um, he, <laughs> like, yeah, he loved them. Like a uh, uh, turn of the century photoshopping, where they like cut out little ca little cardboard yeah. fairies and took pictures with a little bit of uh, forced perspective. And he's like, "Oh, fairies are real." <laughs> I wonder what our things are. I bet people are listening now because they listen to me every week, and they're going, "I could tell you what your things are, Andrew." There's a lot of wrong stuff. Well, that's the that's a, that's a big part of the book. Like the like that's how the brain. That's how we. That's something we evolved to do. We need the objective frame, and from the subjective frame, we we produce arguments in a very biased and lazy way. We will produce them all day long. But if you don't have a sounding board, if you don't have a, a, a group to offload the cognitive labor of such things, if you don't have an objective frame to depend upon, you make you just keep arguing with yourself and winning. And, <laughs> and you just get more and more entrenched in, in all sorts of things. And so that's why it's so easy to do. Jordan Peterson's gone a bit weird. So you were talking about fame. Um, and I'm always very wary of mentioning people like that because I don't want to lose any listeners. So uh, that's, that's, I'll just go out and I'll just say it's more important to me that people continue listening and I get a big listenership than, than my scruples or anything. So do stick around anyway. Uh, but he started to say a lot of weird things about God 
and all this mad stuff. And it does, it really feels like he must go home and argue with himself, as you just say. Like, I can imagine him going to bed, you know, before bed, just arguing, 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 and always winning, as you say, you know? Well, Jordan Peterson, you know, when he was a, um, uh, when he was just, when everybody knew him through his lectures when he was at the University of Toronto, and although, you know, if you were get, to take a Psych 101 course from somebody, that's a really good Psych 101 teacher. Like it's a great, he does a great job of introducing a lot of topics in those lectures back in the day. But then as soon as he became famous, like he, and he became like mega super famous, uh, every day he's being, uh, hit with thousands. Like it's, it's hard to wrap your mind around what it's like to, if you have a social media presence in two, in the 2010s with every day you open up and there are 10,000 people who've told you how much you suck and you're you're a primate, you're going to re react to that. And some people do a great job with it. And some people don't. And some people get very defensive in a way that eventually kind of spirals them into a dark place. The, the, one of the things that he doesn't benefit from is that he framed a lot of his conversations, at least the ones that have been filmed and get shared online are framed in a debate format. And that debate format isn't really amenable to what I proselytize so much in this new book, which is a, a format in which I come to the table, not trying to to win or lose an argument or not trying to defeat my intellectual opponent in any way whatsoever. I would like to understand why do you and I disagree on this? Because what I'm trying to pull from is the, uh, are the propensities we've, we got through natural selection for, uh, trying to reach consensus on goals and plans of action, uh, ultra social primates with the power of language. That's what we evolved to do. And so it's sort of like, uh, if you think of it, like the muscles in your arm weren't there, aren't <laughs> like you weren't, uh, there, we didn't evolve the muscles in our arm to, uh, to paint beautiful paintings, but we can do that with those things. Right. The, the, we didn't develop the, our powers of argumentation and deliberation to sort out what's true and what's false in this world. Um, the, the, the toga wearing, walking through the halls of, academia and saying, ha ha, have you, my, I propose such and such and using logic and all these wonderful things. Like those are inventions and tools that came out of this very complex, uh, neural architecture that developed for all sorts of other goals. And so all sorts of other pressures that created this. And, but we can do that with those things and it's wonderful, but reasoning when it comes to the sort of base level purpose of it, or at least the function of it is to come up with reasons for what you think, feel, and believe for the sake of deliberating with your like-minded peers that your in-group your trusted um, associates who are in your tribe you're trying to create a environment where i produce these arguments from my experiences i've look i don't think we should go in there and that and i don't think we should go there because last time i was there a bear tried to eat me and somebody else says you always are afraid of that kind of stuff you're a very fearful person you know each other well there's lots of trust it's like uh you know you, it's the kind of thing where if you go to a movie with your friend and you love it and then you come out and they say they hated it and you don't just immediately go like well i don't ever want to talk to you again <laughs> like like let's go let's have a debate let's get two lecterns in an audience and discuss the matter and you just talk it out and you move a little bit toward them they move a little bit towards you 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 become this venn diagram of of how you experience the movie that uh, that's all the same sort of thing that happens when a group of um proto-humans the assumption being we would uh we're trying to decide what we're going to do next. And we're very good at that. We're very good at, at taking in everybody's input and coming out, coming out of it's evaluating everybody's ideas. But 
the purpose of that is for um, is for intention to behave. Like it's all about creating an intent to do a thing in the future. And we, but we can take all of those tools and apply them to trying to sort out, well, what is the truth in this, in this regard? What is factually true? What is the thing that, um, what is the attitude that generates the least harm? What is the plan of action that's going to, uh, get us the goals that we actually want for the most people and cause the least destruction. We can use it for all those things. Uh, but you put yourself in a debate frame and you get yourself into a, I need to win and you need to lose frame and you lose all of this. And oftentimes I think the arguments that we get into that, that, that we get most frustrated by and the ones we feel were the worst, the ones where you're online and you think to yourself, how do I tell this person? I don't want to talk to them anymore. <laughs> like that's because you slipped into debate frame where you could be in this other frame, which is, okay, you see it this way. I see it this way. You feel this way. I feel this way. You have an estimation of truth that doesn't match mine. Our certainties are off from each other. I wonder why that's so could we, could we join forces? Could you, I trust you, you trust me. We're both on the same side here. And the side is let's try to solve a mystery of why we would disagree on this. And in that frame, we tend to discover each other's uh, flaws. We tend to evaluate each other in a way that's respectable enough that we both come out of it going, Oh wait, I was wrong about a bunch of stuff, but also so are you, but I was right about some stuff. And so were you. And you move forward in a way that debate doesn't allow for and I feel that certain people, as we've been discussing, um, it's very easy for the context in which we find ourselves today, especially if you've garnered some sort of fame to, to be almost, uh, to slip into a place where almost all of your interactions take that debate place because you're defending your reputation every single time you're in front of people. And that makes people, uh, act weird, say weird things, go outside their, uh, areas of expertise and so on. Well, Jordan Peterson probably wouldn't have said a few years ago, do you know, there was a swimsuit model who was overweight and, and he said, he tweeted, sorry, not beautiful. And it's like, that's not something that a psychiatrist <laughs> tweets. But the, the no. funny thing is, cause I, I sort of rela- I don't like a lot of what you'd might call the woke stuff or whatever it's called. People don't like to use that word anymore, but woke, or but I don't like some of it. And I guess I identify a little bit as somebody who doesn't like that stuff and thinks it's a bit silly. So I read that tweet and there was part of me like, yeah, and then it took a while to sort of like let that emotion go away and go like this is like a man just publicly calling a woman fat and saying she's not beautiful everyone has different ideas of beautiful and I, I was like ashamed that I'd sort of gone for that and I I have to we have to sort of do you know what I mean when that emotion comes over sure. you, then you go, oh no no that's not me is it Ugh. and I, I I would ask uh Jordan Peterson to you know, employ psychology here, therapeutic models, which is ask yourself what motivated my decision to do this? What motivated my behavior? And then when you get that answer, keep asking why until you get as close to quirks and gluons as you can get. Like, why would you tweet that? Why would you like, what's the, what's the function of it? Um, my assumption is that it's a reputation management thing where you're like, I'm signaling to the people around me. Um, I'm a good member of my group and this is, you can trust me and I'm a, I'm not a them. I'm an us. And ironically, that's the thing that he rails against the most, which is the idea of people signaling in that way, which is what he's doing in that regard with that tweet specifically. I think it might be a little, it's that. And I think it might be that sort of threat sensor coming in because he feels threatened by what he perceives as a group of people who are coming along, maybe post-impressionists who are saying like, nothing that you thought was real is real. Beauty standards aren't real. Sex isn't real. Gender's not, all these things are not real. And I think he's sort of threatened because that his way of living, as we all are, is, is un, he feels it's under threat. Yeah. And, but, and if he was in a, a group of if we were in a little group with him, like if you go back just a thousand years or a few hundred years, if we were just in a small group with him, if he was in our 
our town. He was somebody that's in our, um, that we, he's at the pub. He's at the coffee house. He's, uh, if we go back way further, he's just one of the members of our, uh, you know, uh, uh, traipsing across the, the steps, uh, small group. If he was in a small group like that, we could, we would like benefit from having someone who was a little overtuned to that threat of maybe we shouldn't be policing ourselves to this level or we shouldn't be doing something like he's over attuned in a certain direction, but that over attunement is something we would all know about that person. And we would take it with a grain of salt. The same, the same person in a, uh, a multi gabillion member group of people trading arguments back and forth looks like what he is, which is a gr outlier in certain regards. And it, it's, it, it just floats free floating in space in the argumentation space as it immediately is pulled out of its context and floats amongst all the rest of the stuff in the argumentation space and people's reactions to that negative or positive, you know, they are, they are, they're reacting to something that has been sort of disconnected from its context on every level. Um, yeah, I don't think it's a good tweet. I don't think it's even a good viewpoint. I like, I don't think it's a good idea to tweet it. And I don't think it's uh, I don't think it paints him as a very good person in certain regards, but I also understand that from his perspective, none of that was part of his motivation but he's isolated in an argumentation space that's unfamiliar to the human mind. It's unfamiliar to the human brain. We didn't, we weren't, this is a new way of being that's difficult to manage. I quite like him. And I, and I think it's because he's quite handsome, not to bring the tone down. You know, he just, there's something sort of quite handsome and charismatic about him. So I sort of find myself drawn <laughs> that reminds to me of the boat captain study. Can I, can I totally eject from this before we like, yeah. <laughs> like this is a beautiful study. Uh, I had it in the book because I wanted to talk about trustworthiness so much, but we took it out because it's like, how many pages are you going to devote to something that people did not come to talk about? Um, the boat captain study, and I'm remembering it as best I can. I don't have any notes or anything to, but it's basically what you get is uh, they had, they took a bunch of photographs of people who are running for office, I believe in France. And they, um, Put them side by side as the people who are running for this particular office and then they took those photographs and showed them to children in a latin american country and said um which of these two people would you like would you prefer to be a boat captain who would you pick to be the boat captain if they both were saying they want to be boat captain who would you pick and by and large overwhelmingly the the person the children chose was the person who won the election which suggests that when we don't have a lot to go on, and this is something that's in the book in many regards, when I talk about the elaboration likelihood model, when we don't have a lot to go on, we go on simple cues. And one of the simplest cues we have as human beings is trustworthiness. And one of the simplest ways we determine trustworthiness is in a microsecond glances at an individual's face. And there's, there are things that people portray that as social, we have the supports of the brain that is only devoted to recognizing faces. If, if there's some damage to that portion of the brain, we can't recognize faces anymore. We come into the world that's like pre-installed. It's not something we learn over time. It's not something that's culturally like generated. It's something that's shaped by our experiences, but it, it comes free with every copy of the human brain. And somewhere in there, it seems to be, we have these predilections for recognizing some sort of simple cues that suggest this person is or is not trustworthy that we'd have to like investigate it further, but with nothing else to go on on a photograph, we'll say, okay, well, this one's better than that one. And it seems to a lot of people, especially in low information voting environments, they might just go with that. Like, look at that, look at that person. That seems like a cool person to vote for. <laughs> I get, I've, I've got the impression that like physiognomy, the, the study of, you know, people's looks uh, giving away something about their personality. I think that's been debunked 
uh, I think. Yeah, yeah, sure. And so that was like gothic literature, wasn't it? All the Dracula stuff they were on about. Or, oh know. man, there's so much stuff. The like the I've got a uh, I've got a phrenology head back here. The the yeah, almost all of that was uh, eugenic stuff. Yeah, uh, they were like like how can we like show that. Uh, the people who control everything are the people that ought to be controlling everything. And, and, <laughs> and they're like, and so that it came from uh, faces uh, and then it went into uh, bumps on the head and then uh, everything you can imagine coming out of that to eventually had full, full blown eugenics. Uh, I read, I talk a lot about that in, in a side project I did called the, um, the ex is called exploring genius where I went through the history of intelligence research. And I was very surprised how much eugenics was in all that. Um, so yeah, uh, the book. Uh, I'm going to write an article about this. Uh, throw it up on the newsletter, uh, and I'm glad you you mentioned this part that I'm definitely addressing, which is boat captain study doesn't seem like there would be anything problematic here, but it does in some ways appeal to something we ought to be careful about, which is the old world of eugenics phrenology stuff. Yeah. It's, so it's not about people's looks actually making a difference to their personalities, but it's about our perception of their looks. I'll probably false. Yeah. The false perception. Yeah, the, the, uh, nobody's suggesting that person is actually trustworthy. Well, we look, I mean, look at the people who've been elected over the years. We know that's not true. <laughs> I mean, Will, Will Storr, I think, I mean, because of the status game, he says a similar thing about virtue signaling that it's not about um how virtuous someone is it, you know it's how virtuous they appear to other people so it's the same with the looks it's not about how trustworthy you are it's about how you're just lucky to have those looks that obviously donald trump for some reason and boris johnson something about them makes them look trustworthy i don't even know yeah i mean it, it it's it's sort of uh it opens up that that a gross feeling space of uh, how much we depend on simple cues and how little we actually do understand the world around us. I love that old bicycle study where they ask people to just draw a bicycle and, and the, most people can't like most of us cannot draw a bicycle despite having seen it. Like I'm talking just a line drawing 2d. Can you just draw a, a bicycle in 2d? I'm talking two circles, five lines. Can you make with bicycle? No, it's really circle, difficult. Circle line. <laughs> and like just, you could, now, now imagine, uh, describe to me, uh, the, uh, the, all both sides of the gun control debate in the United States, uh, you're going to describe it kind of the way you draw a bicycle. Uh, we go on a lot of simple cues in a lot of places and being alerted to that, I think is, is, is very valuable. It's a real gift when you get alerted to those sorts of things. The, there's a, there's a, some great research into where they had people, state their positions on things that were controversial at the time, like flat taxes and immigration policies. And then they would ask them as a second part of the experiment, uh, please describe this in as much detail as you can, as if you're going to teach a class on it. And then people are like, eh, I don't actually know. And like they started with things like zippers and toilets and bicycles, but then they moved into these like uh, political concepts. And when a person realizes, oh, I don't actually know as much about this as I thought I did. And then they re-ask them for their, um, they're where they are on a scale of like attitudes, they really move back away from whatever extremist position they may have found themselves within because they realize, Oh, I don't, I don't actually, I'm holding a view that's extreme based on something I don't actually understand. That makes me feel weird. And they pull down a little bit. Waiting on a tax return. Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. 
Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. How would you, I haven't even asked you, we're 40 minutes in, I haven't asked you, how do you change people's minds? Do you feel like you've developed a bit of a superpower as well? A little bit. I mean, like I, in the book, I don't start talking about persuasion techniques till page 218. And I only know that because somebody told me that. Well, there's the group at the, at the beginning of the book uh, who are canvassing, deep canvassing. I do. I, I talk about them because it's, I show you what they're doing, but I don't explain how you could do it too, or what the science is behind it is we have to go from that into, well, this is something we should try to understand. Um, I, this is totally unexpected in the project, but what I did is I met people who do deep canvassing in Los Angeles. They go door to door. They uh, knock on people's front doors. They are biased. They are biased in the sense, and they are attempting to to persuade their biases. They believe that um, opposition to LGBTQ issues is something that they would prefer people not do. And, um, they want laws passed that, uh, create more progress in their mind in that regard. So I, I say that I also agree with that, but I want to be sure to state that's a bias It is something that I believe is true. And I want to change the world. Um, and they go door to door and they have an incredibly high success rate. Uh, and I can, I'll get into why in a second, but then also spent time with, uh, um, street epistemology. Uh, people who uh, do something very similar, uh, they go to all sorts of places, college campuses, just sidewalks and things, and they engage people one-on-one, and, and they attempt to, in their, in their world, it's not an attitude-based thing so much as it's a fact-based thing. They look, in for, they look for fact-based claims, and they try to see if you've uh, uh, done your due diligence epistemically. And then the, I talk to people in um, smart politics, they do something similar, which they do. They try to help people who disagree with their family members on political issues, develop better ways of having conversations when they meet them one-on-one. And then, um, I went into the therapeutic world of things like cognitive behavioral therapy and motivational interviewing and all sorts of other things, uh, go in with all this. Uh, I even spent time at Westboro Baptist church and spoke to, um, uh, former members and they had their recommendations on how to outreach people. Did you speak to Nate Phelps? I spoke to, uh, I spoke to Megan and I spoke to Zach and a couple of others. I didn't speak to Nate. Ah, okay. He was on this this podcast, Nate. Yeah, yeah. I, I spoke to several people in the family, but not, not Nate. Um, the thing I found so wild and all that was all of these different groups had never met each other. Uh, they weren't aware of each other's work until uh, actually the book kind of helped bring them together. Um, and they definitely weren't aware of the science that underpinned what they're doing, except uh, Karen Tamarius, who does smart politics. So she's a Psych, uh, psychiatrist by training. Um, but they were all doing the, pretty much the same thing, which was to me felt like, oh, there's really something here. Like it's like uh, in the book, I say, it's like if you're going to build an airplane from scratch without having seen anybody else's work, everybody builds pretty much the same airplane. Like it's going to look pretty much the same because physics is the same. Um, it seems to be that the things that work when it comes to persuasion are all going to work because of some things that seem to be similar across cultures, across brains. And not only were the, the techniques similar, the order of operations within them was similar, which like their first, second, third steps were all pretty much the same, you know, but they hadn't met each other. And, and they had arrived at this through A-B testing. They would 
go out and try it. What didn't work, they threw away. What did work, they kept. They just kept iterating. And they all had found the same truth. I thought this was beautiful. It felt like something from like the naturalist part of the scientific history, you know, when they were, you have these different people who hadn't met and they finally get to compare notes and go, aha, I saw the same thing when I looked at peas growing in, 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 in this particular soil. Um, the, the, the way it works is mostly is, uh, man, how do I even get started without, uh, uh, going on a two hour rant? Um, the simplest thing I could say is that you have to make sure that all persuasion is self-persuasion. So I cannot copy and paste my reasoning into your brain. And if we do a bat, we have, we do battle at the level of our conclusions, which is to say the, the facts that we've cherry picked from all the evidence available to us that for whatever reason felt like those supported my arguments or that they, my uh, skepticism wasn't inflamed when I looked at it. And that becomes a fact that I use to defend myself or to rationalize or to justify my position. If I produce those and I assume that if I dump enough of those on you, you'll go, Oh, the weight of all your facts is enormous. I must change my mind. Never going to happen because the other person is going to do the same thing. They're going to take their, whatever it is that's motivating them to cherry pick evidence, to select out the bits that seem supportive. And they're going to dump that. And this idea that we're going to put our facts into an arena and have them fight each other out. Um, I don't know if you ever tried to do this on the internet, it doesn't seem to work <laughs> very well. Uh, and the reason it doesn't work is because these are just all justifications, rationalizations, and explanations for something deeper. And the deeper thing is never exposed or explored in a conversation space like that. But anytime you do employ a technique that does do such a thing, you get results. The, there's two, the researchers, uh, that showed this to me that they were researching this whole idea. They called it a uh, technique rebuttal versus topic rebuttal and, uh, Topic rebuttal, you have to be in, a, in a, a good faith environment where everybody's playing by the same rules. And that's an environment where I can just, we can just trade facts back and forth or evidence. We can trade evidence back and forth. So certain scientific domains, uh, legal domains, their academic domains where people can do that. Uh, it requires us all being on the same page and, and having already done a lot of the stuff that it's required in these techniques, which is basically establishing a system and rapport that allows for that kind of disagreement with benefits. The other thing is called technique rebuttal and technique rebuttal is, is not letting the facts battle out. It's, it's exploring each other's reasoning it's, and it's asking, it's helping a person explore their reasoning for the sake of seeing where their conclusions come from. And that almost always leads to a person updating the conclusion because they've updated the process that arrived at it in the first place. And it goes in an order. The, the simplest way I could describe it, they all have a similar order, but the, the first thing you have to do is, is establish rapport. Um, in motivational interviewing, this is very important in street epistemology, very important, deep canvassing, very important because the idea is that if you, as we we're talking about earlier, like if the other person feels like they're about to be shamed or, or they're being uh, manipulated or they're being pushed or their agency is under threat, then, or even if they feel like there's an audience watching this conversation and, and so what they say, they have to be careful about it. The, um, it's over and, and the, so you have to first establish a rapport in such a way that it has to, you have to almost as best you can create that environment of when we walk out of this theater and you don't like the movie and I do, it's okay. Like if, uh, if you've got some pretty wild ideas about UFOs, that doesn't mean I'm going to disown you. It doesn't mean I'm ever going to talk to you again, or we can't go play, you know, magic, the gathering or whatever it is that you do. You like it. You have to have that trust so that we are feel able to explore each other. And then once you've got that, 
and you have to be transparent and open about your intentions. Like, I w- you know, I would like to explore this, um, something with you and see, and possibly, you know, see how you feel about it. Maybe you might even change your mind. I might change my mind. Are you open to this? Like really give them the ability to say no to everything. Give them all their agency and be transparent. Then if it's a fact-based claim, ask for the claim, ask for what the, ask for what that specific claim is. And then once you have it, you want to confirm that you've understood the person. So you try to put it in even better words than they did, or try to uh, reflect back to them, paraphrase it to them in such a way that they, until they say, yes, that is exactly what I'm claiming. Often a lot of stuff happens in that space where we're both trying to articulate and uh, in the articulation, the idea gets a little bigger than was first presented and it shifts a little bit. Then you clarify all their definitions, which this is very important because you only want to use the other person's definitions. If you, you don't want to start switching to the way you define things. And there's like, when it comes to like politics, like some people think of politics as in a civics textbook kind of way that this very high minded concept of how, uh, you, you vote and you have values and there's compromise. Other people hear the word politics and it's just, you know, a circle of lizards in a room with cigars, <laughs> like to deciding how they're going to destroy the world to play golf all day. Like make sure you get your definitions out there and they use their definitions. And then you get to the part where it's like, uh, where the real magic happens, which is you ask for a numerical measure of confidence. I, w- I was really stunned. Every technique does this. And sometimes they, they may not use numbers, but they typically have numbers as a fallback. If they aren't, if a person hasn't very experienced with the technique, you can use numbers before you do get experienced. And you ask the other person after everything you've done on a scale from either like zero to 100 or one to 10, how, how confident are you that you're correct on this? Or if it's an attitude, you could say like, you know, how do you feel about this on a scale of one to 10? Like, uh, the last, uh, star Wars movie, what would you give it on one to 10? Uh, if, uh, you think the, the earth is flat, like how confident are you? The earth is flat. Are you like between those two numbers? And then once you have that numerical number, this is where, this is what makes this so powerful. You ask, you could ask it like this. You could say, why does that number feel right to you? And just sit back and give them space, hold as much space for them to explore. Cause oftentimes we've never done this. I mean, you can do it with yourself right now. Like think of, uh, I mean, I, I think the most neutral thing is something like, um, uh, okay. The, the, the first, uh, I feel like we've all watched uh, Game of Thrones. I haven't seen it. <laughs> well, damn, of course you would. Uh, <laughs> I've watched Harry Potter. I love Let's Harry say, Potter. Okay, cool. Let's say there's a new Harry. Have you seen the new Harry Potter movies? Uh, the the ones that are like not Harry Potter anymore. I've seen like the first couple of them. Okay, sure. So like, how do you like, how much do you like them on like a scale one to 10? The new ones, uh, oh, yeah. a three out of 10. Yeah, a three. Why, why a three? Because I think <laughs> now I'm going to sound like I've got this huge Harry Potter fetish or something. No, that, but, that's what's great yeah, about I, it. I, that's what's great about this question. Okay. Because <laughs> what? And I'll let I'll yeah. wait to answer. But every time you ask it this question in this way, I always see this. People light up, sit back, and realize I've never done this. <laughs> I have this feeling, and I've never yeah. I've never introspected in this way. And then, which is what happens in therapy, but it's also what happens in every model that works. But yeah, let me get your short answer of like, why a three? Well, I, I just think, I think a lot of the magic came from Hogwarts and it's outside of Hogwarts. It's in America, which again is a country that doesn't have that magic of, I mean, it didn't have to be England. It could have been like Bulgaria or one of these sort of old fashioned witchy countries. So I think it lost a lot of its allure. I think that's one of the main reasons I didn't like the new that's stuff. That's a great answer. And a three though isn't a one. So I'm wondering why didn't you give it a two or a one? Um, I quite like uh, Eddie Redman. 
he's sort of funny in it. And I liked the little nostalgic bits that made me think of the old Harry Potter, uh, the actual, you know, original film. They do a pretty good job with the um, the nostalgic bits. Mm. Mm. It was okay. It was okay. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> yeah. if we were doing this, and the, the typical conversation is going to go about 20, 30, sometimes 40 minutes. If I was to focus on, we're talking about an attitude. In this case, it's an attitude, which is a slippery concept. The the motivational interviewing loves to to do the thing where I ask you if you're a five, why not a four? If you're a six, why not a five? And or it depends on which direction you're hoping that the attitude will flow. If you want somebody to have a more positive attitude, then I'll ask you why you know and why did you go this way or versus that way? If it's more negative, depends on which side you're going. But what I'm attempting to do is get you to elaborate uh, arguments that you produce that I don't produce that are in the direction of a slightly different number on the scale. And also to help you learn on your own that, oh, I do hold this opinion, but I don't hold it all the way because there are some good things about this, some bad things about it. And we just stay in there. And the idea is that when you walk away from the conversation, you'll have more arguments in your head than you had before for this thing, more things you've articulated. And the if I instead encourage you to argue in the other direction, you will create more arguments to stay in the position you're already in or have a more extreme position, which is where the backfire effect itself originally came from, which is it's internal counter arguing that piles up to the point that you have more counter arguments than you had before somebody challenged you on the issue. On the other hand, if it's a fact-based claim, like, um, you know, is the earth flat is a good example. The, uh, or uh, like, let me just ask you this. I know I have no, we're just, it's just for play purposes for the sake of demonstration. Like, do you think the earth is round? <laughs> um, I think it's spherical mm. with like bumps. It's like not precisely. Sure. Sure. Let me it, ask I it differently think. then. Like, do you think the, do you believe the flat earth model is correct? It's more complicated than that. And only because, and I'm not just trying to be like the smart ass here. There are different, and you were talking about the different um, definitions. There, are, I've spoken to a few flat earthers, and some of them are just, well, I think, probably maybe one or ten. Or I don't know. You're, you know more than I do about, about that. But one of them seemed to be suggesting simulation theory, which is something that is actually a reason. So I pushed and pushed and pushed. And I was like, okay, but what's at the edges and why is this? And he was like, because it's all just a simulation. I was like, well, that's simulation theory. That's not flat earth theory. Like, of course the earth could be flat if it's simulation. Oh, good. So, I'm, yeah, okay, I'm then bit- let's do simulation <laughs> theory. On a scale from one to 10, uh, where 10 is you have absolute certainty on this to the point that oh. you could write a book about it and go on national television and buy advertising space. And a one would be, uh, that is the dumbest shit I've ever heard in my entire life. Like, were you out on simulation theory? Seven, six or seven. Seven, I got it. And so I could go from here with why a seven, and I'm I'm sure you have, I, I can feel what might, what might come out of you, but I could also choose either direction and say, a seven is, is uh, not, a, if I was trying to dissuade you, I would say a seven is not a 10. So I'm wondering, um, why not at an eight? And then you would, tell me all your counter arguments that, and you might produce some you'd never thought of before. Or if I was like a, uh, a, I was pretty sure simulation theory is true and I want to move in that direction. I can say, well, why not in the other direction? So, but if you're doing street epistemology, like the goal here is you really hope want people to have your, your goal is not to change the other person's mind. Um, if your your goal is to help a person develop better critical thinking skills and to create better epistemological, uh, like robustness, uh, better um, 
uh, skills at um, basically the rhetoric and logic and, and propositions and sorts of things like that that most people have, have never experienced. And you can do that by just showing that you don't have to have black and white beliefs in anything. You can have these gradiated Bayesian sort of concepts. So uh, if I wasn't trying to actually persuade you, if I just wanted to open a conversation space with you in this way, um, I would stay within that place. Let me, and I would say like, when it comes to um, simulation theory, like uh, let's, let's assume you've already told me why you're at the number you're at. The next thing I would ask is like, well, what reasons do you, would you put forth for holding that level of confidence? You said you were, I think you say you were a six. Yeah. Six or seven. Okay. Six or seven. What level, what reason, give me just like a reason if you could be the reason, but what is like a reason that pops in your head pretty quickly is why you'd be a six or seven. Just, I've heard Elon Musk talk about it. I know he's not right about everything, but it sounded quite reasonable. And he said that the probability of us not being in a simulation was more like less likely than that we are in one. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't know enough about it to be more than a six or seven. Yeah. And see, I like this, uh, the humility, epistemic humility. The, I would repeat this to you, talk to you about it. And then the next thing I would ask is something along the lines of, um, there are other people who seem to be about as knowledgeable as Elon Musk who don't believe in this. And I'm wondering like, what's a good way to kind of sort out who's right, who's wrong? How, what methods do you use? And this is where I'm moving into that. Your, what is your methodology for sorting out the truth? I think, I think I'd go with the, the what was the boat was called? The boat theory, was it? It's like the person who looks <laughs> yeah. good. Elon, he's got a good haircut. Uh, or it's sometimes, depending on the photograph. Um, did you see Did you see the photos of him before he was sort of famous? I did. And I have. Wow. What a, what a glow up. Uh, it must yeah. be good to be the richest person that's ever existed. Um, yeah. So then, so in the, in all these techniques, you, you start with rapport, which we've established through our conversation and like, you know, I'm not out to like just ruin you or I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to us them you in some way. I actually want to talk about it. I'm interested in what you think and feel. I might learn something here. That's what you're trying to establish. And then even if you, even if you, if you're like really on the other side of something, like the person you're talking to is like bad, like the things they've done are bad. Like you really don't actually want to be this person's friend. If you want to persuade them or you want to do anything in this space, you still have to establish some level of rapport. And that doesn't mean you have to actually agree with them. It doesn't mean you have to ever actually invite them over for anything. Then you ask for the claim, ask for a measure of confidence in the claim. Uh, make sure you get the, all the definitions right. And it's very clear. Then you, then you want to stay in the space of, why is that number feel right? Because what you're doing is it is a it's guided metacognition. I'm opening space for you to explore why you feel the way you feel, why you think the things you think, and then what we will do is try to find the reasons that that are under, underpinning it. Those are your justifications and your rationalizations. And then I want to ask you about what methods are you using to determine that those are good, that that's a that's a just thing, that is a re reasonable thing to think, feel, and believe. What's your methodology? Because that's the source of the whole thing. Is you start to explore your own methodology. And then you listen and you summarize and you repeat and you wrap them up and wish them well and hope to have several conversations. One of the most important caveats here is real rapport. Uh, in motivational interviewing, they talk about it in terms of um, pre-contemplation versus contemplation. You can't really establish rapport. You can't really start. You can't have this kind of conversation with somebody without rapport established. And if you have a family member that you've argued with endlessly, uh, you have to repair the relationship before you can have these kind of conversations. So you have to engage in things that will give you the rapport space that you have to build rapport. That may take more than one conversation to do that. Then you go into this world. 
But if you haven't done that, you can't just jump straight to the persuasion stuff because they're going to push back harder than you push and it's going to be bad for you. So that's a really important caveat to all of this. I, I'm happy you didn't, you, you asked me about Harry Potter and Flat Earth and not gender ideology and uh, critical race theory and stuff like that. But on that note, I mean, you, diversity training is, is one thing that I know is really controversial because apparently, I mean, I mean, not even talking about, you know, whether it's necessary or not, but apparently it's not that effective. I, again, I don't know enough about that. I, I would give you a six or seven about that. Just I've heard, I've heard snippets that it's not mm -hmm. that effective. A diversity training. Uh, yeah. You, like the... Last time I looked into this was uh, we're, st we're still doing a lot of replication on things like implicit bias. And, uh, but more to the, to the point, like if you agree that this is something that is, you want to change in the world, that this is, there's harm coming out of a certain way of seeing the world. There's a certain type of harm you're trying to eliminate. Um, the scientific method is great in this place because we're like, okay, we have a goal, which is to eliminate this harm. How do I measure the harm itself? But the, how do you get a measurement of the thing? And then how do I do A-B testing that determines whether or not the harm is being reduced? And then am, am I open to saying the, the method that I'm using currently is not reducing the harm? If so, we need to iterate on it. Um, I think people who have a lot of underlying negative attitudes, people who are just plain out racist, uh, they're eager to find any suggestion that maybe something in the status quo that goes against their uh, attitude has been justified to be not effective in some way. And they're going to rush to a black and white view of it. They're going to rush to a, aha, see, and you should never do stuff like this, which is a ridiculous way to see anything. Um, there's a, all of that stuff is incremental and, and progresses by teeny tiny steps. And you just have to let the research be ongoing. But the end of the day, what you have to be worried about is what is, what is the thing we're trying to accomplish here? What is the value that we're trying to express? And, if our intention is set, then we can do the kind of research that moves us toward the thing we want out of the world. And we don't throw everything out just because something doesn't work a little bit or it's complicated. You could also apply what they call the Swiss cheese model to, to it. I'm sure you're familiar with that. That's a, the, where there's no in military tactics there. They like, there's absolutely no tactic that's going to get us the goal we want. Well, not by itself. So what we do is we try, we do this thing and we look at all the holes that are in it. And then we put another piece of Swiss cheese on it that covers some of them, but not all of them. You put enough levels onto it and you get the thing you want. But the, there is sort of a, uh, there's a real fallacy in assuming that a one size fits all or just one policy will solve a thing or one change is going to make the difference. It's usually a confluence of about a hundred different policies all at once and a bunch of different best practices to actually get the thing, but you just can't lose sight of the actual thing you're, you want and uh, be open to the fact that the way you're going about it now might not be the best way or that may need lots of other, lots of help from other things that are applied at the same time. Yeah, it's, I always think about, and I've, I've said that on the podcast and just how hard it is just to get, on with one friend or a girlfriend or partner or whoever when you're like going on holiday like what restaurant you want to go to what you want to do with your day and like that kind of thing that's so hard just to do that between two people who are already very close and have frames of reference that are shared so imagine like a country of 70 million or a country of uh 300 i think it is million in the states like how the hell are you going to sort that out so that everybody want, like has their life the way that they envisage that life should be you know yeah you it's uh politics is about compromise and politics is about um having uh test uh spaces for democracy like that's why it's really important to do things at the local level the county level the state the city level the uh state 
the level and region level and, and keep letting all these sort of uh, um, test labs of democracy sort of sort out what works. And when something really seems to be like working well, we can try to scale it up, scale it up, scale it up. And then when it breaks at certain scales, we work on it and work on it. The you got I come from the deep south United States. and When I travel to New York or, or Los Angeles or Canada, it's so incredible the culture shock that I didn't know would could possibly be a thing, even though I attempt to be a very progressive and open-minded person. I um, and likewise, when when I have people in the New Orleans area, uh, just be like, "Wow, this is a different way of being a person." Uh, and it's it is. I do think though that they're like from a Star Trek: The Next Generation kind of viewpoint. There are some fundamental things that we can all agree upon must be done and must be we we should work toward. And then when you divide that down into a billion little fragmented bits, there are some things that, uh, that when two, like with the gun debate in the United States, like I'm very familiar with people on both sides of it. And I've watched their values being expressed in the extremes. And I can see that there's a, in, um, there is a hesitancy to compromise toward either side. One side wants to turn the schools into basically like, uh, you know, maximum security prisons with, uh, with uh, James Bond security guards walking around outside the other, and like, that's how you solve this. And the other side is, is on the other extreme is no more guns ever for anybody, for any reason whatsoever. And the, and it, trying to, uh, to come to any kind of compromise is impossible when you're like, you're unwilling, the one side is unwilling to give up any gun or any type of gun format. And the other side is unwilling to, uh, to increase, uh, to do anything but work on just guns themselves. And so the compromise has to be in the space of like acknowledging what the the problem is, acknowledging that we have different values and things that we want to make sure are are uh, are taken in account in account of in this or in this argument and then working toward a, a compromise space. The the inability to compromise, the idea that uh there's an us and there's a them and anytime they get anything they want is going to make the world worse is was clogs up the uh our ability to progress in any direction whatsoever i remember reading about um the i don't know if you pronounce it amygdala or amygdala um maybe it's a british american one i don't know which one's which but uh, uh, which do you know which way it is I've always just said amygdala, but I've heard it pronounced other ways. So apparently, the, basically, the threat sensor in the brain and scientists used magnets to turn that off, and then people were had less uh, angry reactions. Magnets to turn that off, and then people were had less. Uh, yeah, you can even uh, there's research where you can just show people pictures of spiders in car wrecks, and then ask them their what their view is on a certain political. So I feel like a lot of it is a threat. Yeah, basically. Well, they get they get let's let's not say racist. They get more conservative in, the, in their political views, uh, and if they are racist, they get more racist. Um, they <laughs> what they do is they become more fearful, and if that fear is something that is born out of prejudice, then that prejudice fear will become more extreme in their uh, justification and, 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 uh, their, their attempt to, uh, cherry pick evidence and so forth. The, yeah, I mean, we, we survive, like if we go back to our more simple groups, like, uh, I, you want people who are the kind who are eager to go out into the unknown and scout for things and come back with things and would try new stuff and, and AB test the world for us. And then you also want people who are like, uh, I'm going to stand guard at the perimeter. And uh, somebody, oh, there's somebody new here who's not in our group. 
let me take a real good hard look to make sure they're not out to do something like we sur we survive by having these very liberal very conservative ways of being and letting the two work together in concert the idea of letting one of those two extremes just decide everything i don't think anybody wants to live in that world because one world is a is is walls covered with laser cannons and nobody has and everybody <laughs> there's no more um, poetry and the other one is a drum circle that lasts until we run out of food. So I don't think we want either extreme. I think both of them are walls with lasers. I'm sure that that fear test must work. For example, if you did it on like the Bolsheviks, um, you know, <laughs> and then gave them a spider, and then said, "What do you think of these wealthy farmers?" That they'd have also reacted aggressively and said, "Well, let's burn them all. Well, then you won't have any food. Doesn't matter. The spiders made us scared. So fuck the farmers." <laughs> I think if there's any takeaway here, it's uh, never go vote. Uh, after seeing a spider like avoid all spiders before you make any decisions <laughs> Thank you, David, for coming on the show. It was a pleasure and really interesting to delve into the science of changing minds. Hope you guys got something tangible from that and it helps in your debates and conversations going forward or simply makes you something of a manipulative person, able to manipulate, make people do things at your beck and call. Toxic, all of us. Uh, but maybe just it will help change minds a little bit. Get How Minds Change in all the usual book places. It's a great read. Get in touch and let me know if this episode changed your mind you'll find david mccraney easily on twitter and all that stuff i'm on all that as well tiktok instagram there's all this all the things all the things if you just type on the edge with andrew gold you'll find me i could do with the followers uh david wants some as well i'm sure come follow us message us um and all that uh the youtube sessions uh, i put this out live as a premiere at 9 p.m on uk that's uk time mondays and thursdays and i'm usually in the chat on the side and we're getting a healthy number of people now joining a lot of you guys who listen to the audio in the morning and then you come to the chat in the evening we all people are starting to all become friends you get to meet everyone it's a real community uh, or you can just sit on the sidelines no one will even know you're there you just watch the watch the chat happening um, my sister turned up at the, the latest one said hello to everyone that was quite nice she's going to come to a few more keep reviewing on Castbox and apple and share this podcast with everyone you know please uh, i'm in a funny mood this this morning doing this uh, coming up is a space lawyer talking about the philosophy of rules and laws. He's a professor. He's not just some nutcase. He's a, a smart guy. Um, but the rules and laws that we're going to need in space. You've been on the edge. It's nice here. Stick around. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.